Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. Hello. Good morning. Oh, hello. Did you see the pictures I sent you today? I did of, of snow at your house. Yeah, I woke up this morning with a silent snowfall. It was so pretty. And it reminded me of my childhood in Minnesota growing up and being all excited and turning on the radio and trying to listen for school closures. And <laughs> my entire 12 years of school, St. Louis Park schools never closed because we had the best plowers in the world. So, Oh, bummer. <laughs> yeah, all the outlying towns, their schools would close and they'd have a snow day and we never got a snow day. But are you going to go make snow angels? No, I but I threw some snowballs this morning because it's that wet, sticky snow. It was fun. I've got a couple <laughs> of vendors great. here today. I've got somebody prepping some walls for painting. Mm -hmm. And then I have a um, I'm installing. <laughs> it's a funny time of year to do it, but I got a bargain on it. I'm installing a pool heater because I have a pool and in the they didn't have a heater for their pool. And I'm a was <laughs> when it comes to comfort. swimming comfort, so, comfort. yeah we won't but the pool's covered for the winter it's winterized yeah. and stuff so yeah well so we that, had a lot of rain here in santa barbara which you know in southern california we don't get a lot of rain so we had two days pretty much solid it's sunny today but i put on all my rain gear that i wore last year up in the pacific northwest and it brought back some fuzzy memories for me too of my journey in hope and my love more tour. It was awesome. So I, I get that like, Oh, that feeling. Yeah, it was get. that feeling. And then I, you know, I don't have a car here yet. So I, I drove the other night to St. George, did a lot of shopping because that's where everybody in Canab goes shopping is in St. George. And I went to Bed Bath & Beyond. I went to Best Buy. I went to the Boulevard Furniture Store. I went to Costco, a lot of shopping. And then there were about 40 birth workers only four midwives because there are only four midwives in St. George and Cedar City total. Mm -hmm. So anybody looking to get out of California who <laughs> wants to come and move to Southern Utah, think about it because there's a lot. I of, might. <laughs> and there's a lot of babies being born here because yeah, there's a lot I of families might. that have large babies here, large families. They had a meet and greet for me. Oh, it's one that's of the nicest great. things. There were at least 40 people there. It was a They've potluck. They've got to be excited. Yeah, that you're there. Yeah. Well, it was great. And we sat and we ate dinner and then we had a sat in a big circle, like a double circle because there were so many people and sort of had I talked for a while. Like, people always ask me my origin story. And so got that pretty down pretty good. But then it was a sort of a Q&A and people telling stories. And you know how much I love storytelling because that's how people remember and learn. So Beautiful. it was really nice. A, a shout out to the people of that whole group. Maybe I'll and, come out there someday and we can do a, a live together like we did. Oh, my God. Barbara. You, you, That'd be fun. By the way, they'd be fanboying all over you. If, if there's such a thing as fangirling or fanboying, I don't know what it is, but <laughs> they all they all know who you are. Well, I'm a so, girl. <laughs> yeah. So I've got a couple of things that I'd like to talk about. Do you want to did you have anything on your list? Oh, I've got a lot, but we've got a guest today. So let's see what you got. All right. Well, let's go to, again, since I don't have a printer, I have to do it the old fashioned way and look things up. I have some very simple things here that I'd like to go through. One is from a person named Britt, 
And she writes me this. She's from Canada. And she writes, thank you so much for what the work you do. I'm Canadian. From the, <laughs> from the lower mainland of British Columbia. As of summer 2020, all of the major hospitals in my province have a cesarean rate over 40%. The hospital I gave birth at stands at 41%. And by the way, the reason I'm reading some of these and most of these because they tie into our guest today. If you want to just give a quick little, not a bio, but just a quick little tease as to who our guest is today, and then I'll finish the story. Yeah, her name is Jen Dunatov. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'll have her correct me if not. And I met her on the panel that we discussed here in Santa Barbara, and she's an ethicist. And so she said so many amazing things while we were there on this panel together that I thought she would be, we, don't, we haven't had anybody like her on the podcast. So I think everybody will, we're excited about this conversation and I think everybody will really enjoy it. So Britt goes on and she says, I almost became a part of that statistic when my, after two hours of pushing, my midwife had to call in an OB because of policy, All right? The OB took one look between my legs and said, she has cap, meaning I'm, oh, yeah. I'm assuming cap it. Yeah. Tell her to stop pushing and get her in for a C-section. As luck would have it, <laughs> Jesus, like luck is the deciding factor on who gets section and who doesn't. There was some kind of holdup with the anesthesiologist and all of the theaters were full. Gotta love that socialized healthcare. I kept pushing with my midwife and gave birth to my son vaginally without a vacuum or forceps about 45 minutes after the OB had said, we need a C-section. He was healthy and fine as could be. I later learned that the cap the OB mentioned had to do with some head swelling, which I read is completely normal for vaginal birth. And it is. Yeah. There's a, there's a real problem up here in regards to our healthcare system and competency of our practitioners, and it extends to the birthing units and midwifery centers. And then she sent me some news from there. But she said, thank you again for sharing your knowledge. So again, as far as the topic today of ethics, Every day when I talk about my breach seminars, I talk about how every day in every doctor's office, there's a violation of medical ethics, sometimes on purpose, sometimes unknowingly, but every single day. And when Jen comes on, I mean, we're going to listen to what she has to say, but I have a couple things from ACOG that I'm going to read to her and get her thoughts on because okay. what ACOG says about ethics and coercion and that sort of thing. And Thanks. then I have one more, just one more. And this is from Amanda. And let's see, Amanda writes, I went to the dentist today <laughs> and encountered just how pervasive the birth medical model is in our culture. They asked if anything had changed since my last visit. I said, well, I'm no longer pregnant since I had my baby on September 24th. The hygienist was like, but your due date was the 18th. Because that was in the medical history on the dental mm -hmm. show. Mm -hmm. She asked with a shocked tone. They let you go past your due date? Let you. I responded just as shocked. Yes, and I didn't use an epidural. Again, she seems shocked. How sad that as women, we don't know and aren't educated on what our bodies can do. I saw it earlier in the week when someone posted on Reddit, entertain me. I've been in labor for a while and I'm starving and I need a distraction from my hunger. Mm -hmm. And she said, I responded, eat. <laughs> which is what, which is what I say sometimes when I talk about how mammals, you know, mammals give birth. If, if they're hungry, they do this amazing thing. They eat. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, drink, they're, and move and around. 
And if they're thirsty, they drink. And if, they, if they're uncomfortable, they get up and move around, right? Yeah. Exactly. How sad that a woman in labor can use social media, but not give her body the nutrients it needs. Right. Amen. I, I feel sad for women my age, and I encourage my friends to listen to you in bliss. Have a good one. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. So, so I, I did, I did want to tell you, I'm watching this show on Netflix and it's called Sinner. You've seen it? Oh yeah. The, I saw the first two. Is that the one with Bill, Bill Pullman? Pullman? Yeah. I saw mm-hmm. the first two seasons of it. Okay. Well, guess what? In season three, there's a pregnant woman. Uh-oh. Eventually, well, but wait, but wait, eventually there's going to be a delivery scene and we're always poised like, here it goes. Guess what? She had a home birth, a water birth with a midwife on the episode. And she didn't, ble- and she didn't bleed to death? No, I'm grinning ear to ear. Now they did do some things that weren't exactly accurate. Like she was having contractions seven minutes apart, but there were people with her already. And the midwife was there. And, and then as soon as the baby was born, you know, they showed him cutting the cord. So, you know, that does happen in the hospital, but usually at home births, we don't intervene that quickly. So there was a, a couple of inaccuracies, but they had my birth tub in this episode. And I was like, Oh my God, Did they had the birth so- pool in a box. Yes. yes. And they had her on a birth ball and she, you know, was, she the, had a home birth. The producer Yay. of that show is the wife of Justin Timberlake. And for life, Jessica, no, Jessica Beale. No. Jessica Beale was the one in the first. Yeah. She's the creator and producer of the show. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, it was a woman. There you go. Yeah. And, I mean, not and all women do it right. That first yeah. season, the first season was, whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. It's a little intense, but it's very good if those of you haven't watched. And we're always talking about people doing it wrong. So I thought I should give them a shout out because they did some of it right. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. Especially when you after the Joe Rogan fiasco. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, why don't you tell us about Jennifer? I'm going to bring her in. Okay. Okay, great. Hi, Jen. We're so glad to have you here. This is Dr. Jennifer Dunatov, and please correct me. Did I say that right? Close, do not, but I'll take either say way. It. <laughs> say it how it how it actually is. It's Dunatov. Dunatov. Okay, got yeah. it. Thank you for correcting me. No um, and she is a healthcare ethicist living and working in the greater Los Angeles area. She consults, teaches, and writes on all things birth ethics. Jennifer founded the No Trauma Mama Project in 2017 after learning as a new mother about the global epidemic of preventable birth trauma in clinical settings. She believes when people experience ethical and respectful births, it can be transformative for birthing people, families, and entire communities. Jennifer has served in clinical and academic roles for 15 plus years. She is currently Senior Director of Ethics in Southern California for a large healthcare system. Her passion of working in relationship with others to address ethical issues in healthcare delivery has taken her from New Zealand to Switzerland and many places in between. Welcome, Jen. Thank you. I say Jennifer or Jen. Everyone calls me Jen. That's great. Yay. Okay, great. We're so happy to have you on. And it was such a pleasure to meet you in person here in Santa Barbara and to hear you speak about the work that you do and your passion. And that's what inspired me to ask you to join us. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm so happy to be here with you both. And Bliss, it was a pleasure meeting you in person. 
what a great yeah. event that was. Wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it really was. So I thought, you know, it would be great to start out with if you could kind of tell us one, how you got into this work and your story, but also if you could just define ethics for us, because some people might really not understand what that term is and how it relates to birth, childbirth. Absolutely. So my story, how far back do you want to go? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever feels right for you. Sure. <laughs> so I learned about the field of healthcare ethics as a senior at Loyola Marymount University when I was wondering, what am I going to do with my life? Where am I going to go next? I knew I wanted to teach and I wasn't sure where I wanted to place my focus. And I was really intrigued. I mean, this was 20 years ago. So at the time, the field looked very different, but I was really intrigued with this idea around something that I could do where I could have one foot in an academic space and one foot in a clinical space, because that the practice of what I was researching was really important to me. So I got interested in this field of ethics as it applies in healthcare, where we're reflecting on morals and values and what people find to be important in how they understand the world and the meaning we ascribe to the world, like in the context of medicine. It was a route that I never thought I would go in, but it was fascinating to me. And I thought, you know, there was a lot of cool stuff going on in the genetics world at the time. And I thought, I'm going to be a medical ethicist that specializes in ethical issues in genetics and biotechnology. So wow. talk about a 180. <laughs> <laughs> so of course, it took me the experience of having my first child mm. to have this major realization. And I'll never forget, I was sitting, if you know Giselle Bome, who used to own and operate Granola Babies in Costa Mesa, California, she used to have oh, these really, meet her. you know, yeah, Giselle, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, amazing person. She used to have horses for new mothers in the back of her store. And I remember dragging myself out of my house with my six week old infant, my firstborn James. This was back in 2014. And for a while, I had been a practicing medical ethicist and I was, of course, on leave. And I'm sitting in the back of her store in this class. And I had just had this amazing water birth out of hospital birth center water birth. So I'm on this high, right? I just experienced yeah. midwifery care. I'm in this amazing place. And of course, like the A student that I'm trying to be when she asks us to share our birth stories, I shoot my hand up and start telling this beautiful story. And as we go around the room, though, every woman in that class had a very different story. It was traumatic story after traumatic story about how people had felt disrespected in their hospital birthing experiences. And the stories ranged from, you know, my wishes weren't respected to the extreme of I had an experience that felt like when I was raped when I was 19. And this, I mean, wow. so I'm in this postpartum haze at this time. Like I said, I've been practicing medical ethics for about seven, eight years. And like the red flags are just popping up for me. And I'm thinking they're clearly is a visible pattern I'm experiencing here. If I'm the only one in this room telling a good story and the rest are this just shocking, number one, how have I not noticed this in the work that I do, first of all? And then secondly, I've got to file this away. So when I am back, you know, working again, back in that research clinical space, I've, there was no turning back. I knew that there was something that I had to do to address this and start putting my own attention in my work on this. And at the time, there was almost no conversation around 
ethics as it applies to everyday birth in in the literature or really anywhere at all. So that's that's a bit about how I that was just a really transformative moment for me and why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Yeah. And, you know, it brings up a point that it's a tiny bit of an aside, but I wanted to highlight it for our listeners is that I often tell moms, try not to make too many plans about what they want to do in terms of their professional life until after the baby comes, you know, people are like, Oh, should I, you know, when should I go back to work? And, you know, trying to make those kinds of decisions. And I'm like, you don't know how you're going to feel afterwards, your whole trajectory of what you think you want to do might change. And that's such a beautiful example of, you know, you kind of knew what you wanted to do and then life presented you something and your heart and your mind and your perspective had been opened up and changed so much from your birth that you went in this whole other direction. And thank goodness, because you're doing such beautiful, beautiful work. Yeah. I have a quick question. Did you want to say something? Yeah. Yeah. I could just listen to you guys probably talk the whole hour, but (laughs) But that's not, you know, I can't help myself. Well, we like you to jump in. (laughs) You said something when you were talking about your past. You said that 20 years ago, the field was very different. Mm -hmm. And I want to be curious because I look back 20 years ago at obstetrics and there's not much difference (laughs) in the way we treat treat women and the way the the interventions and the C-section rates and stuff, pretty similar to the way they were in the 90s. So um, mm-hmm. What did you mean when you said the field was very different? Because my sure. brain immediately goes to something more sinister, but I don't think that's probably what you meant. <laughs> no, no. And I'll clarify. So the field of healthcare ethics or medical ethics looked very different. So it looked very different in the sense that there weren't a lot of women in the field doing what I was doing at the time. There were only two PhD programs in the country at the time that did the type of program that I was looking to go into that was both a clinical an academic centered program. So the field had largely been dominated by men, white men, very academic, and the field was now opening up more women were taking interest, which I think, I mean, it doesn't take a huge stretch to know that maybe why issues around labor and delivery were underrepresented in the field at the time. And women of color, people of color in general, the field looked just visibly very different and has grown in different ways and placed emphasis on the different areas of ethics in medicine and healthcare, I think, due to just the natural progression of representation in the field, as an example. So I wasn't referring to obstetrics, and I agree with you. <laughs> it was more along the lines of what how the field of medical ethics has really developed. Yeah, because when I was younger, I mean, ethics never even came into the conversation, really. Yeah. And then Bliss and I, we've talked a lot about the self-proclaimed ethicist from formerly of Cornell, who is really doesn't have no ethics training, but he's become sort of the go-to ethicist guy. And his ethics changed, you know, they're shaped by his ideology and not the other way around. And (laughs) which is, you know, is antithetical to me because you know what beneficence is. I'm sure you do. And, you know, it's basically the the idea of doing good. And giving people choices and giving people options. And one of the things that in our field, we think home birth is a reasonable choice. And there's enough evidence in the world that suggests that home birth is a reasonable choice. And yet, because beneficence would say, well, then you should give people that option. But the ethicists in my profession didn't like that very much. So they got rid of beneficence mm-hmm. and they changed mm-hmm. it to something called professional responsibility ethics. Have you heard of this? No, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, I'm not surprised because they made it up. 
because this way they could say that the ethical responsibility of an obstetrician is to advise against home birthing. Hmm. So, well, you know, I would say, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Bliss I, was going to say, say well, something. that's, I would say, well, that's not really well informed in terms of the other three principles of bioethics. So beneficence is one of what we call the four principles of bioethics. The others are autonomy, justice, and non-maleficence. So autonomy, the right to determine your own course of care based on the information that you're given, re- hopefully accurate, reasonable information, non-maleficence to do no harm. That is simply what that one means. And then justice. We all have a sense of what justice is, right? There are a myriad of justice issues that we consider in ethics, everything from resource allocation to understandings about bias and how that all impacts medical care. So Dr. C, what you're describing it tells me that that person hasn't done much reflection on the other three <laughs> principles of bioethics. Yeah, well, a lot of the ethics in my profession is here's what we want to do. Now you design some ethics to get us there. That's yeah. that's yeah. the way it works. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not a scholar. My thank God. <laughs> thank God. <laughs> really? Well, you know, it's interesting because I'm smart in other ways, you know, and it's been interesting to like navigate that process for myself to be like, I may not necessarily be able to like quote science and statistics and stuff like that, but that doesn't devalue the wisdom that I have gained through my life. So I'm listening to you guys talk about this in these definitions, and I'm going to even ask you to break it down a little bit more, not just for myself, but for people who think like me. So when you started to define ethics, and I might have you repeat that. To me, it seems like there's a lot of wiggle room. There's a lot of subjectivity in terms of what someone could define as ethical or what Mm -hmm. is ethical. So I would love to hear you guys talk about that a little bit more so that people who maybe need it to be simplified a little bit to understand can grasp Mm -hmm. the concept and how it actually gets applied. Like what does your work actually look like Yes. Tangibly for people. Sure. Absolutely. And Bliss, what you're describing, you know, it makes me think about something that I really love about ethics, or at least my orientation to ethics is there are multiple ways of knowing, right? We can intellectualize academic size. (laughs) I totally made that word up. I love it. All these (laughs) concepts, but we have that inner innate knowing and intuitional knowing that is the basis for all of that language and compartmentalizing, right? So, and I'll definitely get to the idea of describing what ethics is and giving you a practical example, but I just want to affirm you and say, when I'm teaching people how to identify ethical issues, the first thing I say to them is, what is your gut telling you? Is there an issue here? Don't overthink it. There's a red flag for a reason. You've noticed something for a reason. And that gut feeling is like ground zero for identifying where there are issues. So, even if you don't have the language to talk about it, I mean, that's why we have ethicists. If you don't have the language to identify it, just noting like something is not sitting right here in this situation, that is valid. That is 100% valid. And so nurturing our internal knowing and sense of intuition alongside being able to describe in the formal language what's going on in a situation are, in my mind, equally important. And you so. know what? It's so interesting that like just hearing you say that, And I'm not even in a situation that's challenging in this moment, but just hearing the language you use and validating that that is enough to be able to advocate for what would feel good. I'm thinking about people in the hospital or 
you know, in any situation where they may need someone to be able to help them get a voice. When we do informed consents, one of the things that they teach us is that you have to make the language simple enough that a fifth grader could understand Mm -hmm. it. And, you Mm -hmm. know, it's just really important that no matter what your language or your beliefs or where you come from, that you feel respected and you feel like someone can hear you and help you get to a place where you feel comfortable and safe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for that. No, you're welcome. Yeah. Trust is built in many different ways. And we need to remember that when it comes to the professional patient relationship, whatever, or professional birthing person relationship, whatever that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So it's time to talk about another one of our sponsors. And this is a brand new sponsor who I was fortunate enough to meet some of the people that work there when I was at a dinner in Austin, Texas from thisisneeded.com. So Bliss, tell us a little bit about them. Well, you know, what's so cool is Julie, one of the founders was my client. She had a beautiful home birth with me. And I know this company really well because she's in Los Angeles and Needed is a nutrition company focused on optimal nourishment for mamas. Needed offers the most comprehensive prenatal multi on the market with the best nutrient forms and dosages to help you thrive, not just survive. Not only is this nutritionally complete, but it also comes in three options, a powder, which I really love when they do powders for prenatals because some women don't really like to take pills, especially when they feel nauseous. So they can throw it in a smoothie and get a lot of great benefits. So that I really do love. Capsules or essentials. The founder of Needed are two mamas who discovered through their own nutrient testing that they were extremely deficient in the key prenatal nutrients, despite eating healthfully and taking a prenatal. They dug into the research and found that they were not alone. 90% of women who take a prenatal vitamin and yet 95% are left with nutrient deficiencies. So Julie and Ryan went to work and redesigned prenatal multi from the ground up with a group of perinatal nutrition and health practitioners. So check them out. They have an amazing line of prenatal vitamins and choline and collagen and all kinds of really great stuff. So check them out. Yeah, I got a gift bag from them and it was filled to the brim with all the different things they have. And once I get my medicine chest in order in the new house, I'll be excited to open them all and start giving the ones that are appropriate for me to try. Yeah, because they have a line for men too now. Right. And and you know what? There's a lot of variety out there. It's kind of like when you're shopping for shampoo, and you look at the shelf and you don't even know where to begin if you don't have a brand that's your favorite. So let's make Needed our new favorite brand and, and use them. And all you have to do is to go to thisisneeded.com, just spell it out, T-H-I-S-I-S-N-E-E-D-E-D.com. And in this case, put in the code word birthing instincts, and you'll get either 20% off your, a one-time purchase, which is a really good deal, or you'll get $100 off of a three months or greater subscription. So Go to thisisneeded.com and use Birthing Instincts and give them a try. They support us, so we're going to support them. Yay, Needed. Thank you, Needed. So ethics, you want some practical examples about what what ethics looks like in healthcare. So ethics, whenever I ask people, you know, what does that mean to you? People say right and wrong or good and bad. And there are elements of that, right, where we want to do the right thing. We want to avoid the wrong thing. But the interesting thing about ethics in general is it is precisely because of different gray areas that we encounter that we may have an ethical dilemma. Sometimes we have a lot of good choices in a situation where we're having a dilemma, 
And we need to choose a particular path, especially in medicine and healthcare, where we're trying to reach a certain outcome. And sometimes when we have a number of different options that could end up in what we might say is a good result, the dilemma is choosing which way to go. So if generally we're good people and there's like a clearly, quote, bad option, we would hopefully be avoiding that. And it's sometimes when we're presented with medical situations where there is this gray area and we need to move forward where it can be really difficult. So let me give you a really practical example of that. I am called for ethics consultations. Nine times out of 10, they are end of life situations. So I am best friends with like the ICU staff because the most common ethical issues that people are familiar with in medicine are the scenarios where someone might be at the end of life and there's a family member or a physician who's insisting on really aggressive treatment when we know perhaps that the patient would not want aggressive treatment at the end of life. So you have a values conflict. And ethics is a lot about what we call values conflict. We all have a set of values that we live by. Some of us have really deeply held convictions. And those guide our decisions and choices in life in general and also in medicine, because that's just another area of life that we may be moving in and out of our healthcare or birthing spaces. So when there's a values conflict in healthcare, an ethicist comes in and helps mediate that situation, work directly with providers or patients or both in order to come to an understanding around, you know, what are your values and how should those values be directing care? And we say the the values of the patient or the birthing person, whatever context you're in, are paramount. If we're not upholding the dignity and values of a patient and what they want in the course of their care, then we have a massive issue in my mind. So that happens a lot in end-of-life care. And I am very underutilized in labor and delivery spaces, in routine, everyday ethical issues. So there's a huge gap there in the field. As a consultant, I work for a company, but as someone who's called in to help with difficult cases and called all day long by clinicians and providers, it is, again, nine times out of 10 out of those spaces where we see a lot of patients at the end of life, critical care spaces, ICU spaces, things like that, very underutilized in birthing spaces. Yeah. And I think that that was one of the most mind-blowing parts of you being on the panel is, you know, those of us who are, have been advocates in the hospital as doulas and, and, you know, supporting birthing people in the time of their time of need. We didn't know that you could call an ethics consult. And you mentioned that on the panel and we were like, what? We could do that? So maybe talk about that. Yeah, Stu, did you want to say? Yeah, before we, before we switch to the, to go down the path toward obstetrics, I have just a question about the general ethics uh, consult, especially like end of life type stuff. Yeah. You know, when a family wants everything being done and maybe the hospital says there's, there's no hope, which is sort of the opposite of the scenario that you presented and they call you in, how much weight do you have in the decision-making process? I mean, do you say, I mean, I know that you don't, but you don't say, oh, these people are right and these people are wrong, or you can't, you don't say that. But how much weight do you have? And then not speaking for you in general, because I think that your ethics are very, very strong, but is there a conflict of interest when the ethicist is employed by the hospital? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'll, that'll tie us into the obstetrical world. Because that's where sure. we've got on it. But I'm curious, how much weight do you have when you come in and you're asked to come in and talk? Then what happens? 
Yeah. So what happened? Great questions. Absolutely great questions. And the second one I really want to get into because I've had some own internal conflict around this piece, you know, being an, be a, an employee of a large health care system. So with a respect to um, your first question, when an ethicist is called for a consult, you know, I have access to the medical record, for example, and we enter in our our information just as any other, like a neuro consult or a consult from, you know, I don't know, a nephrologist or so on. So when we come in, we bring together a multidisciplinary team, depending on the situation. We sit down, we have the conversation, and then I write what are considered ethics recommendations in the chart. I put a physical note in the chart with the recommendations. I can't tell physicians what to do. They will still do what they're going to do, but I make what is considered a recommendation that is entered into the medical record. So it's formally there. I am considered part of the leadership team in my hospital system. So with that, of course, comes a certain amount of weight. But at the same time, when it comes down in the hospital setting to decision making, a physician does not have to follow my recommendation. Nor does and the family. Nor does the family. No. And okay. and that's and and we don't force families to or you know, we do everything we can to essentially advocate for what the patient wants if we know what they would want. We don't know what they would want. We talk about, you know, what is reasonably beneficial for this patient? Are they what benefits versus burdens, that kind of conversation. So again, we don't tell physicians what to do. We advocate strongly based on ethics rationale and the facts of the case. And sometimes there's legal components that come into that. So physicians can't do something against the law, right? And we can bring in a legal argument as well. I'm not an attorney, but we work sometimes with people who are familiar with the law. But it's a recommendation basis. So I can raise the concerns. I can document it in the medical record, but they do not have to follow what I recommend. So it's limited. You know, we can we do the best we can. It's, I take comfort in knowing that it is documented because that documentation can be very important depending on the situation we're encountering. And then we just do a whole lot of education throughout our hospitals so people can start to engage their own process of ethical thinking. We hope and pray, you know, I had a mentor that used to say to hope, educate and hope is futile unless you actually see people putting things into practice. So there are limitations. There are limitations. Absolutely. And, and a lot of people don't even know we exist and we do a lot to create visibility. But like you said, Bliss, that was shocking to you at the panel that you didn't know that because anyone can call for an ethics consult. Not just physicians or nurses, but families, the person bringing the food into the, to a patient, the person cleaning the floor. If there's something that is a concern, anyone in that space should be able to call for an ethics consult. Does the hospital then have to honor that? Yeah, the consult needs to go forward. Yeah. And I have to do a lot of education around just how to call a consult or the process of calling a consult. But that would be a serious issue if, if a nurse, for example, was at the bedside in the labor delivery unit, noticed that a patient's wishes weren't being respected, identified an ethical issue and called for a consult. If that doesn't make it through the process, to me, that's a serious concern and so serious be, issue. Bef- before you get into the conflict of interest thing that you wanted to yeah. talk about, just to, for clarification, what forces the hospital to have to honor that? Is that in written in federal law? Is it written in? No. No. So it's a JACO requirement that there's ah, an ethics, okay. what they call an ethics mechanism that exists in hospitals. All hospitals should have an ethics committee 
or at the very least, an ethicist who is addressing issues. Every hospital I've ever worked in has had an ethics committee. So it's a JACO requirement that an, what they just call an ethics mechanism exists. What that has looked like over recent years is an ethics committee at each hospital and or an ethicist working in each hospital. It's a and luxury for- Yeah, I was going to just say, JACO is a joint commission on uh, accreditation of hospital organizations or something like that? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. It inspires fear in every hospital administrator because yes. they're an independent organization. They're not a government organization. They're an independent organization that hospitals pay a lot of money to, to get accredited because without that accreditation, insurance companies and other things, the hospital will suffer financially. I still remember that this is not ethical, but I still remember when Jayco was coming, they would announce what day they're coming. And on that day, all the stuff in the hallways would be moved out of the way and put stuffed in closets and they would clean up everything. And the minute Jayco was done with the uh, inspection, the next day, everything was back to where it was supposed to yep. be. <laughs> All hell breaks breaks loose. Literally, all hell breaks loose. Meetings are canceled. Jayco is coming. And it's right. But think about, in ethics, we talk about, you know, we want long-term systemic change. And this is a great example, Dr. Stu, of like, hey, we're going to make things look shiny and okay, because we Mm -hmm. have this hierarchical overseeing, like, overlord coming in, and we're going to show our good behavior, and we're just going to go right back to the same pattern the next day. Yeah, it's, it's like great. in medieval times when the, when the king was visiting one of their vassals' castles, you know, they would do everything to spruce it up. And then immediately after the king left, everybody would go back to shit. I was thinking, exactly. I was thinking about cleaning up for your family when they were coming for the holidays. That's similar. what I was thinking. Hey, they're similar. <laughs> we all do it. We all do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> similar. Okay, conflict of interest. Yeah, so I will get into this because it's something that I struggle with. I left clinical corporate healthcare for about five years and went back into university setting. And I I did that for several reasons. My kids were young, but I also felt like, okay, if I'm really going to do this research and get into what it means to do birthing ethics work, I need to be out of the space to enter into the space, if that makes sense at all. I needed to be removed in order to process like, where am I going with this? And yeah. This is a great alternative for a lot of reasons in this moment. Well, my kids are young and and this new creative energy is building up around this area. So this position opened back up with my former employer. This was two and a half years ago, May 2020. So what a time to go back into healthcare, let me tell you. Wow. <laughs> um, that was a, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. So I really had to sit with, can I do the work that I want to do? And can I even make an impact? coming back into the system, knowing what I know now. So you mean in regards to your, your experience with your birth? Yeah. And just understanding what the birth ethics issues are and everything about obstetric violence and the patterns of harm that was off my radar in my prior incarnation of work. And then in that five years where I took a break and was actively researching around birth issues, then this job popped back up open again. And I really struggled. Like, do I come back into this or not? Because I think you can create change, but can you create the real systemic impactful change as an employee of the system? And so ultimately, I decided to come back as what I would call a bit of an experiment. And it was a significant leadership role. So I knew that I would have a certain amount of 
clout and I touched a number of different hospitals. So I came back in with the mind around, can I really create change? I am 100% going to be unapologetic in my values and where I stand. If I end up losing my job because of it, so be it. But you can't deny, I mean, when you're an employee of the system, whatever that looks like, inevitably, at some point, you're going to be asked to toe the party line. And I haven't come up against any significant issues where I have felt like it's been a serious values conflict where I would then need to leave again. But it's messy and it's in process. And I'm struggling with that, like in this moment. Yeah, this so is a really good. This question. is an interesting point, because I talk about this when I do my seminars about you know, how the hospital's taken over everything and now doctors and nurses are employees. And one of the examples I use is when a hospital tries to be innovative and they create their own doula service for yeah. women, women that can't afford a doula, which is a nice thought, but ultimately who does the doula work for? And is the doula who works for yep. the hospital going to tell a doctor or a nurse that no, the patient doesn't really want that at this time? <laughs> you know, yeah. well, how do you do that? Well, one of our hospitals, I mean, again, I'm on this podcast, not representing my organization. This is not representing the views of my organization, all of the disclaimer, but one of our hospitals has that very thing going on. And it's a very real question. And it's something that my peers and I are in conversation about all the time. And I realized that that is a factor. So what it came down for me in the moment of choosing to come back into this environment was, where can I create change? where there's the possibility of potentially creating change, even in a very small way that is going to hopefully impact the lives of people entering into this medical space, like where there is that possibility, I'm going to engage it and we'll give it a trial run. And again, if I run up against a situation where this is so antithetical to what I believe and where I feel like this is not the space to make that change, then I will step away. That's the agreement I had with myself coming in. But, you know, I could see where people would not trust that. Like, hey, we're not going to call an ethics consult because the ethicist is employed by the system. And there could be a lot of misconception that I'm only there to represent that hospital or that system. But that's not the way ethicists work. A lot of us are patient advocates, whether we admit it or not. And our duty is to uphold the dignity of the patient. And our recommendations should always reflect that. It's interesting because we did a podcast a long time ago called, I think it was called something like Analyzing the Ethics of the Ethicists. And it, had oh, to do, wow. and it had to do with these two guys from Cornell. But okay. what you're talking about, if there's a fiduciary conflict for like a doula, then there's potentially fiduciary conflicts for every other person that's employed by the hospital who's involved in a woman's care. And that would be mm -hmm. the nurses. Are they going to go against policy mm -hmm. and let someone eat or let someone do something that they're not supposed to do because they know they're going to get yelled at or or a physician, if there's an HMO that says all women need to be delivered at 41 weeks by 41 mm -hmm. weeks, they know that that's not probably ethically sound in any way, shape, or form. Yet they're going to they're going to do it because to not do yeah. it puts them and the, that conflict is just rampant in the current kind yeah. of system that we have. And you can't count on everyone to have this sort of ethics and explain it so well as you just did. No, you're right, Dr. Stu. And I would say where it's different for me is it's part of my job to raise the concern. If there is an unjust policy or policy where there's concerns, I am expected as part of my job. I do the clinical ethics, but I'm also responsible for organizational ethics issues. So if there are policies, if there are patterns of harm, part of my job responsibility to raise those issues. So yes, I mean, 
what you described is totally accurate. And I would put the little caveat for the type of role I'm in is that it's also expected that I raise those concerns as I identify them. It's actually part of my job to question the patterns of an organization as well. So that's helpful for me. And again, in engaging the space. Bliss, you wanted there's to say something? Yeah, there's a couple of things that you said that's just so interesting in regards to, it's not just the hospital. You know, if we all walked into our roles as doulas, as midwives, as doctors, with that integrity that you brought to that conversation where you said, I'm going to take this position in order to make change. But if I ever feel like it's going against my belief system, I'm willing to lose my job over this. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, Dr. Stu and I are in an interesting position because we do challenge some of the norms and people come to us and say, what do we do? You know, how do we navigate this? And we don't have all the answers, but we can at least be a safe space for people to say, like, I don't agree with what's happening and I feel like I don't have a choice. And, you know, as a midwife myself, having to adhere to some of the laws and some of the peer practices that are happening that don't feel like I'm able to individualize my care and to give true informed consent to my clients without jeopardizing you know, my license or my reputation or, you know, something like that. But as humans, you know, given where we are in the world, if we came into each one of our roles with that kind of integrity, I think it would really change things. And so at first I want to acknowledge you for taking that stance for yourself and in the role that you have. And just speaking that, I just, I think it gives us a place to stand that's not always easy. And you were willing to take that risk and say, you know, if I lose my job and I I would assume that that also means that you have, you know, some privilege in that respect that, you know, that you can say that. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't, you know, not all of us do, but. Absolutely. Yeah. It comes with being able to say that comes with an immense amount of privilege. And so the questions then turn to for the person who can't leave and is probably experiencing moral trauma or what we call moral injury, which is the accumulation of moral trauma over time. How does that person navigate those spaces? And, you know, moral trauma, moral injury, I mean, that whole concept is based on the experience of war veterans and what soldiers experience during war. It's the the same level and experiences of trauma can occur in healthcare, especially over the last few years, right? And so for the person who's stuck maybe the labor and delivery nurse, for example, that is witnessing harm over and over again, those individual traumas accumulate to what we call moral injury, where they are injured by being in their workplace, but and they may not have an option to leave that workplace. That is an ethical issue. That's a systemic or clinical and organizational ethics issue that I would have the responsibility to engage and identify. And how would a nurse who's experiencing that reach out to you without jeopardizing your position. Because if if the people that are committing these acts that she's watching, and we're assuming we're talking about physicians, potentially partners or other things, but they're going to be notified or they're going to be, it's going to be something that comes out. How does she protect herself? Even if she, your job is protected. I mean, there's harassment, there's ostracism, all the things that can happen to somebody who speaks out. Yes. Absolutely. I do these Medical Ethics Monday IG Live pretty much every Monday at 9 a.m. And I interviewed a nurse who had been at USC Medical Center and she spoke out against obstetric violence and lost her job because of that. 
So I think there's a lot of education around this because it's a common misconception with the nurses I work with, where they think that if they request an ethics consult, that cannot be considered confidential. In cases like this, where they are witnessing patterns of harm over and over again, they can reach out for an ethics consult and say, hey, I want to identify an issue. Also, I have concerns about retaliation or what this might mean for my job. And then it's my responsibility to honor that confidentiality. And then also, if there's concern about retaliation, that needs to be escalated other places as well. But I even hesitate to say that because in my experience, and if there are any HR folks listening, nothing personal, but HR's first job is really to protect the organization. So that's not a route that people generally would want to go in as well. But I think a lot of people think that ethics consult could not be considered confidential in cases like this. I would treat it differently and move things forward differently. But a lot of nurses, especially nurses, do not reach out because they fear the wrath of the physician that they're working with and are often identifying as the perpetuator of harm. So there's a gap there. There's a gap there. And we just try to let people know as much as possible that you can still, because nurses see so much, they see so much and they experience so much. And we tell them, don't discount back to that point, Bliss. Don't discount your inner knowing and reach out. Even if you're afraid it's not an ethical issue, it's my job to help you figure out whether it is or not. And then to help you help something be done about it. So Bliss, guess what time it is? It's time to talk about our sponsor. Yeah, let's talk about Element. Element LMNT is that tasty electrolyte drink that's got all the good stuff in it, none of the BS. And it comes in multiple flavors. And we are going to talk a little bit today about one of the new flavors, but it's great for for laboring women. It's great for birth workers. It's great for people when working out, whether it's hot outside or cold outside, putting in electrolytes with no sugar is better for you and your body. So Bliss, tell us it because Element's proud to announce they've got a new flavor. It's so funny, right? We just did this special on chocolate and then they hit us with this. So they have a chocolate medley that includes three flavors, chocolate caramel, mint chocolate, and chocolate salt. And all chocolate flavors are enjoyed hot on their own or in your hot beverage, like hot chocolate, no peppermint mocha, or any other cozy beverage you can create. The chocolate medley and all its chocolate caramel and mint chocolatey salty goodness is here for a limited time. And when it's gone, it's gone. So get it while it's hot. Well, so if you guys want to have a chocolate menage, you got three flavors (laughs) of chocolate, go for it. Go Uh, for it. Just go to drinkelement.com backslash birthing instincts. And for every order, you'll get a free sample pack. We've sort of had some confusion lately because I've been saying it wrong. So it's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts. Whatever you order, they'll add in a free sample pack. Thanks, Element. Thank you. At the Santa Barbara meeting, you you know, I wasn't there, unfortunately, because I was traveling. But, you know, Bliss was so impressed with what you were saying. How can we apply what you're saying to the individual families that are coming in Mm. into the obstetrical units of hospitals or even home birthing, but in the obstetrical units of hospitals who are experiencing the things that everybody knows are wrong and they're getting bullied or they're getting gaslit or they're getting threatened or whatever. What is it that they can do involving ethics so that there's a practical thing for the people listening? They might want to know this. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing that they can do if they're in the hospital in that space is to 
there's two routes that I suggest people can go and probably get like the quickest impact. And that is you ask for a nurse manager and you tell the nurse manager, I want an ethics consult. I want to speak to an ethicist or someone from the ethics committee. And that nurse manager should know exactly what to do. If they don't, there's a problem. Secondly, an often underutilized resource are chaplains. You don't have to be religious to reach out to spiritual care. People, I think, often don't because if they don't identify as religious or they don't want that as part of their experience, that that's not a resource that's often thought of. But spiritual care folks and chaplains are often very plugged into what we would call the ethics mechanism or how to call for an ethics consult or an ethicist. So if they're denying a birthing person spiritual care or access to a nurse manager, again, big problem. Those are two practical routes that I would recommend folks go. And if you're a doula working with a family in a hospital, that doula can walk out and say, I want to talk to a nurse manager or I want to talk to someone from spiritual care now. And those are two folks that should know. Every nurse's station should have the number for ethics at their nursing station. And there are actual policies that are ethics consult policies that exist in hospitals that spell out exactly how a consult is obtained. So one of those two folks should know exactly what to do. That's great to know that the doula has rights in that space. Yeah. Because a lot of times when there is conflict or challenges, nobody will listen to the doula that has to come from the parents. So it's nice to know that that's something that she can initiate on her own if she's feeling uncomfortable with what's happening. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Um, anyone can call for a consult. Anyone. So I was going to read something, uh, an exchange that I had with one of our listeners, and then I thought maybe it would tie into some of the obstetrical violence kind of conversations. Just would love to hear your take on it. So her name is AC1985. (laughs) That's her handle. So I don't know what her name is. (laughs) Um, But I posted something the other day where the baby was handed to the mom and there were three sets of hands rubbing this baby down with blankets and stimulating and the baby was crying and the mom said, no, no, can you stop? And they said, no, we can't, we have to get the baby to cry. And they were absolutely ignoring very clear lack of consent from this mom. And so this listener sent me a private message and she said, that just made me start sobbing. I didn't realize how traumatizing they were. And I said, yeah, this is why we need to speak up. Most women don't know how beautiful it can be. She said, it's funny because my second was a hospital VBAC. And I thought, okay, that's a way better experience and less traumatizing than the C-section buzz was, but still terrible in so many ways. Manhandling doesn't begin to explain it. And here I am saying, but hey, you delivered vaginally and that's all that matters. Well, I was wrong. Yeah. Women need to speak up. It's abuse. Honestly, thank you for all you do. And I said, it's obstetrical violence, which I really like to tell people that language because I think it helps identify something for them that they may not have even thought about and then start to speak that as they communicate their story to other people. And I think it helps build understanding of how not okay. Okay. This is. So I just kind of wanted to get your take from an ethics perspective. Oh, yeah, Bliss. I mean, what a coincidence. I just saw that video this morning Mm. and like literally this morning. And it was really hard for me to watch because Mm. that happened with my third birth. So I'm a little bit of an anomaly. I had two out of hospital births and then my third 
was a chosen hospital birth last minute for a lot of different reasons. I wasn't comfortable going to my midwife in that moment. And there were reasons for that. But anyway, should have still <laughs> taken the other turn. But that, that exact thing happened to me with the birth of my daughter where, and I looked back at pictures, I didn't realize it in the moment, but I looked back at pictures and I still had my gown on and they were rubbing the baby with all the towels. And I just, I was not present in that moment to even vocalize, but it was like traumatizing a bit to see that video this morning. Mm -hmm. So language is extremely important in ethics. And when we call these things out in general, obstetric violence, I use that language in every opportunity, if I'm giving a presentation to an ethics committee, if I'm with a physician group, I was just with a physician group and use that language. People visibly squirm when you lose, use that language. But when mm -hmm. I saw that video, and I'm sure maybe a lot of you listening right now, if you were to see this video, I had a visceral reaction. I thought, this feels violent. This feels violating. And with this woman speaking up in the midst of them rubbing this baby with towels, and she is just being ignored and dismissed. I mean, talk about the dignity of the birthing person and their voice and wishes being just stripped in one of the most beautiful moments of her life, right? Is it medically necessary to rub a baby down with towels immediately after no, birth? No, I'm going to say no, right? <laughs> like, no, it's, it's not. Well, no. there's a, there's a distinction, right? There's a baby that needs to be stimulated who has a really low APGAR and is not responsive. That's where that's coming from. It's coming from something medical, right? But that baby was crying. Yes. <laughs> and so at that point, and also why six hands? Why three people, you know? Well, and, so, and I have another yeah. question. I have another major question in that thing is that, you know, I'm not blaming anybody, but somebody was filming that. So yeah. the person filming that should have been roaring. She said, no, yeah. no, you know, and just shout it out. You shout really loud. Now the woman, she's just had a baby. She's like, not the person that's going to probably be able to do that. Although some, we know some people. She tried. Listen, I, yeah. Sometimes you just, somebody has to roar mm -hmm. and then they'll stop because they'll be shocked. Then they'll get mad at you for yeah. yelling at the nurses, but it doesn't matter. I mean, this is kind of like you see on the streets sometimes people are filming, you know, these strange acts of violence sometimes and nobody's doing anything. And somebody was filming that. And I'm just curious as to like, if that was the father filming that, I mean, Jesus Christ, do something. Yeah. It's that bystander effect, right? And I mean, where my assumptions would go to are, you know, when you think about the power dynamics in medicine in general. So here I am, I do what I do for a living. Sometimes when I walk into a physician's office, I still feel like a five-year-old. I'm at a loss for words. It doesn't happen all the time. But I immediately feel like, okay, I need to be the good girl and the good patient in this situation. And that's re into that hierarchy, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I agree with you, Dr. Sue. Someone needs to be roaring. Someone needs to be speaking up. You're filming this. Are you not processing what's going on and feeling the ability to speak up? For some people, probably not. It wouldn't even occur to them in that moment to speak up. And if it does occur to them, people often feel, in my experience, very disempowered Number one, you're in a medical environment that may feel foreign. You might be deferential to people in a white coat or medical personnel in general, and it can be radically disempowering, even with a lot of education and birthing education. Once you're in that environment, I've noticed that can happen, right? And still, 
as young girls, as women, we, you know, have been raised a lot of times to make things feel nice, to make everybody feel comfortable. Even when we feel really uncomfortable, we've learned how to transmute and it's getting better, but we've learned how to transmute that, you know, unwanted attention, that unwanted touch that, you know, those things, we just laugh it off and make it okay for everybody. That's kind of how a lot of us were raised, you know? Oh, give uncle so-and-so a hug, even if he makes, gives you the heebie-jeebies, right? Like, don't be Mm. weird. And I was just looking at something like that the other day that like, it goes so far back for us that overcoming some of this, like saying, absolutely not. Even if it makes everyone in the room uncomfortable, it's going to be a big shift for us culturally. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. Yeah. So I want to get a little more specific, but I want to read something into the record sort of because I like to do this sort of thing because I talk about this at my breach seminars, but the term no is a complete sentence. And there are ACOG, which is again, not an organization that I'm totally fond of, has a committee opinion number 664 put out in June of 2016. And I'm going to read these two things to you. I can't see your faces while I'm reading them, but I certainly like to wish I could. It goes like this. The use of coercion is not only ethically impermissible, but also medically inadvisable because of the realities of prognostic uncertainty and the limitations of medical knowledge. As such, it is never acceptable for obstetrician gynecologists to attempt to influence patients toward a clinical decision using coercion. And they go on and they say, obstetrician gynecologists are discouraged in the strongest possible terms. This is a quote, by the way, from the use of duress, manipulation, coercion, physical force, or threats, including threats to involve the courts or child protective services to motivate women toward a specific clinical decision. This is written in ACOG's guidelines, which of course we know they cherry pick the guidelines they want to follow and they ignore the ones they don't. But this is something that Bliss and I and a couple of our attorney friends were going to try to get together some sort of like card or hands out we can give people when they're feeling like they're being bullied or they're feeling like they don't want a procedure and people are making them feel odd or about that, that they can read this to them or hand it to them because people are helpless. You know, they've just had a baby and somebody's bringing out the injured baby card. And what do you know? You don't know anything. And so this is where like calling for something like an ethics consult I didn't even think about calling for the chaplain. I mean, that's a great idea. But calling for an ethics mm-hmm. consult is something that when I mentioned it, because I've heard about it since Bliss told me about your meeting, I've talked to it, and all the midwives and the doctors that are attending my seminars didn't know that that was a possibility. So mm-hmm. I just liked your thoughts about sort of that. And then, you know, the scenarios for women when they're in that situation where they're being told their baby has to have a hepatitis vaccine. Or the baby, you know, needs to go under the billy lights or needs to go to the nursery to be observed. And you know that the parents don't want that. How does that all apply? And the looming threat of CPS. Child protective services. Oh, yeah. Let's, we'll break that down because that is a very real thing. And people of color are disproportionately affected by the threat of CPS. And that is a deeply concerning thing because I got any parent, I can't imagine a scenario where when you're threatened with being called, you know, where they're going to call child protective services that you would not just fall in the line and do whatever the heck you want. And that's threatening, coercive, abusive, and completely unjust. Yeah. So massive issue there. Obviously, education is so important. And for all the reasons we just talked about, when you're in the scenario, 
all of that can go out the window. I mean, I didn't have a single intellectual, rational thought in moments in my birth and, and after. And so providers take advantage of that liminal space. I really feel like that is happening. At the same time, you know, having an advocate in the room, I mean, obviously, I can't say enough, having a doula that sees their role as advocate, a doula that really embraces the aspect of their work as patient advocacy in those moments is incredibly important because even a birthing partner with all the education, all the childbirth ed, which is extremely important and I believe everyone should do in those moments of perceived crisis, it's hard to recall oftentimes the things that we would hope that they would say and do. So I can't say enough about, you know, from an ethics perspective, having an additional advocate in the room that like a doula, if you're able to have a doula, would be extremely important. And just knowing that you have the right to say no. With my hospital birth, I said no to eye ointment. I said no to vaccines. And there was pushback around that. And I was pegged as the crazy hippie lady in the in the room. I mean, there was language like that used, again, for another podcast. My experience there is an ethicist sort of out of my body observing what's being done and said around me. But I was never threatened with CPS, but I knew that I had the right to say no, that I had the right you know, based on informed consent, I listened to all the information that was presented to me. And I knew ahead of time, and that took some prep, knowing that that could be a possibility that I would be giving birth in that environment. Where do I stand? What are my values? What do I want for my care and my child? Informing myself and learning from educators as much in advance as possible. And then when being presented with those options, knowing that I have the right to say no to these procedures. So as a white woman with privilege, you know, I was not threatened with CPS. And I think, again, that that disproportionately affects people of color. If that had been threatened, I don't know what I would have done, because that's a very scary thing. But it's coercive. Back to the ACOG statement. I mean, this coercion, the fact that ACOG needs to call these things out yeah. is demonstrating that there's a pattern. As you were reading, I was thinking to myself, the fact that they have to say, don't physically harm your patient is just so enlightening around what is possible in these spaces. It also signifies they know what's going on. Yeah. And, and they don't yeah. speak out about it. This is their yeah. passive way of speaking out about it, as opposed to, you know, they have all kinds of campaigns to get people to do this procedure or take this prenatal vaccine or to do whatever. They have all these things that they're educating us, but this is not one of those things that seems to come up on the radar screen. It's like they're walking on eggshells with their own members. It's it's a strange thing. Yeah, that's interesting. And I would just, you know, I just, I want to say, clarify for a minute that I just listed some of my choices in that experience. And the whole point of having autonomy as a principle of medical ethics is that everyone should be given the information and feel empowered to make the choice that is best for them. So in that particular situation, those were our choices. And there were specific reasons for that. And at the same time, someone who chooses differently can be equally as valid for them and important for them. It, people just need to be given the choice and not bullied, coerced, or otherwise threatened for their choices. And Jennifer, it's a basic tenant of medical ethics that given the same information, it's unreasonable to expect two people to always come to the same conclusion. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Well, 
This has been such a beautiful conversation. I'm wondering if there's anything that we didn't touch on today that feels really important for you to share that you want to make sure that people know about your work or about just general, the world that we're living in that feels important to share your voice. Yeah. How do we make ethics important again? How do we, how do we do that? Visibility and the more, oh my gosh. Well, I would love for people to engage with me. I try to do as much free education as I can. I mostly do that through my Instagram account. I'm no trauma mama on Instagram. And I do a lot of webinars and things on the side as well. So raising visibility around ethics services is incredibly helpful and important. So now everyone listening knows that you can call for an ethics consult in a hospital. Spreading that news far and wide is really incredible. And I know when people hear ethics, they probably think of some horrible high school class they had to take and got like a C minus in. <laughs> but ethics, <laughs> ethics is really a beautiful field that focuses on how we as individuals and communities find meaning in the world, the things that we consider to be valuable to us, and moving through the world with integrity. And for me, the justice component is a big part of that. So I have my own values and convictions. And I also have a deep desire of going out in the world and upholding a sense of justice and systemic change. So ethics is, yeah, it's that right or wrong, good and bad stuff, but it's a lot of other things. And I think ethics, awareness and consciousness, as we create conscious caregivers in these ways, I think there is an incredibly powerful piece that can really move us towards the meaningful change. Yeah. Beautiful. That's a great way to end, but I just have a couple more things I, I want to bounce <laughs> off you because because it. it's rare that I have an ethics consult and now I have an ethics consult because <laughs> I have you captive on the podcast. You're um, captive. You can drop off anytime, Jennifer. <laughs> I, I'm being coerced. Yeah, you know, so this is this is just something I want to read into the record and I also then get your comment on. There's two people that wrote to me and they didn't know that we were going to do this podcast today, but it just seems so apropos because it's about varying subjects and how they affect all of us. And here's, this is from a physician who is a follower of what I do and very supportive of what I do, which is a nice thing to have a few of those. And he says, I was thinking about you the other day when I had a meeting with a faculty member here at, to give me feedback. Apparently some faculty are upset that I stand up for my patients and my belief in true informed consent. I had an attending tell me in front of a patient, not to talk about the future risk from a cesarean delivery because it would scare her into not wanting one. Okay, We had a beautiful forceps delivery after our discussion on the risks and benefits of cesarean versus operative vaginal delivery. And then, he, you know, this is from Bradley. So the doctor who said that in front of the patient had, they don't even know what they're, I don't know that they're even aware of how they sound. No, obviously not. No. <laughs> so no, do we need more ethics so. training in medical school or residency, or is it just oh. something that's innately in you yes. from growing up? Where does it come from? Why oh, are some man, people so unethical? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. But to your point about medical school, ethics education historically in medical school has been so shockingly minimal. Shockingly minimal. It's right I up there with uh, nutrition and breastfeeding. It's really high right, up on the exactly. medical Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and I know some incredible ethicists that are uh, that are now faculty in medical schools, and I'm sure they are doing just an amazing job. But consistently across the board, it's incredibly minimal. I mean, we are training technicians that aren't also being trained with the emotional intelligence and ethical consciousness to accompany that 
technical training. And I think it varies within different specialties for sure. Um, but we're not, we're not, in my opinion, we're not teaching practitioners. I mean, bedside manner is one thing, but raising the conversation to the level of having this awareness based in value, you know, values-based decision-making and general consciousness about how their words could be affecting patients is it's it's pretty it's pretty disgraceful quite honestly and so what happens is in hospitals now once you have people practicing you have people like myself ethicists and ethics committees trying to do education and you're trying to help people address patterns and biases that they've been in, in um involved with and enacting for like 20 plus years in medicine so can people really really truly change in their interactions or is this just so automatic so I, I'm not a psychologist, <laughs> I'm not a sociologist, but I would have to imagine it's a combination of things. But the lack of medical school attention on ethics resources and ethics courses is, I think, very much a part of the problem. Yeah. And they put these people in charge of things where they, oh, yeah, for and sure. they have no, they have no ethical things. And, and their, you know, their responsibility is often to finances and to money and not Ethics. And here's the last one I just wanted to read. This is from Marcella. She says, my husband has a master's in civil engineering and was working on a research project funded by the state. When he reported back to his professors that there were no meaningful findings, they told him to find a way to make the data look meaningful so they could secure funding for the following year. Needless to say, we are very skeptical about the science at our house because we know how much it depends on who's paying for it. So again, a lack of ethics is yeah. really responsible pretty much for, I don't know, maybe 95% of the world's problems. Is it possible? I think it's possible. I mean, when it comes to studies, number one, always follow the money and see who's funding the study. That's that's the first thing I would say. Not, not read, all studies are created equal. Yeah. True. Yeah. And read the material and methods section. In, I always say that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think, I mean, this is bringing up a really good point. I think there's also just, I mean, where we are in society today, a lack of desire. People want the 30 second education, right? Like they want the, they want the quick, real, I mean, and Hey, I engage in that world all the time. That's one way that I try to educate, but they're not willing to go deeper. And I just think people don't have the attention span because we're a product of how information is, is shared these days. And that's, you know, we're all impacted by it. Um, but a lot of folks don't have the desire to go deeper. So they make snap, snap judgments. They try to educate themselves based on these, you know, 30 second snippets of information. And I think that's also part of the problem in trying to educate providers and help them think differently. Keeping someone's attention long enough. And this is deep work. Ethics work requires some really internal, some deep internal reflection and a willingness to address your biases, assumptions, and how that plays out in the way you treat your patients. And, you know, I do lectures all the time and I do workshops and courses and I've got my physicians, they're just, you know, on their phones and sure they're getting calls, but keeping attention in a lot of ways is really, really difficult and, and vital to this work as well. So it poses a, it poses a problem. Not everyone's going to go look up the study. They're going to see something on Instagram, they're going to see someone quote a study that's a snippet in time of what that study's about. They're going to believe that to be truth, and they're not going to go the extra three steps to really look into that study. And there's a gatekeeping thing around studies as well. Not everyone has access to a portal, an academic portal, where they can have full access to a, a study. 
they're, and often they're behind paywalls. So there's a justice issue around access to information as well Thank that I want to highlight. Thank you for doing that because that's very yeah. true. Yeah. Does that answer no, it's, no, that's Sorry. great. The, the, the <laughs> sound got a little screwed up there. So I apologize to our listeners for the last bit. Hope they can decipher what was said. Oh. And because this is one of the most valuable lessons in life to learn is that if you don't have really ethics and you forget your place, you don't really have anything. You don't have integrity. if You don't have ethics. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of people in our profession who don't do that. So, wow, Jennifer, I'm sorry I missed the Santa Barbara thing because it sounds like it was really, really great. But I got an hour of you anyway. That's what I'm saying. I think this is even better because we just get to hear her talk for an hour. <laughs> yeah. If oh people want to reach you, you gave your Instagram as uh, no trauma mama, right? On Instagram. <laughs> and I met, yeah. And I met, I also, my website's no trauma mama.com. There's a story behind that. When this work was starting out, it was a project that I started with two research assistants when I was teaching at Mount St. Mary's University. And that's the name we came up with. And it has stuck. I love so, it. I love it. There we go. Yeah. Well, well we, we loved having you here. We may ask you to come back another time just because, you know, you kind of pointed to a couple other episodes that we could discuss and we're always looking for great conversations. Yeah. So we appreciate your time and appreciate the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much. It's been lovely to be with you. Lister, that was really good. Thank you right? for getting her to come on. My gosh. Yeah. yeah. She's lovely, did she, right? Did she Just blow the audience work. away with her stuff too in Santa Barbara? Oh, I was like, I thought you meant this podcast. I'm like, I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, we were blown away as birth workers. So I know I, that the audience did yeah, too. This was, this yeah. was a great hour for great. me because, because mm -hmm. it just melds into everything that we stand for. Yeah. Absolutely. Is, is ethical stuff. So Absolutely. Hey, I wanted to also just mention, I'm going to invite them on to the podcast, but there was a movie just released called Born Free, which I got to do a screening the other day, a little private screening. We were the first ones to see it. The other screening was in New York that evening. So that was kind of exciting. A friend of mine here is an executive producer. So I'll invite them on, but you can go onto iTunes and look at it. It is an amazing new documentary about all the things that we talk about and about, you know, advocacy and history and needing a change in the world of obstetrics. So go check that out. Yeah. And sort of the other side of the, of the coin, I was on Augustine Colebrook's podcast recently and it just, well, it was, I was recorded a couple months ago, but she released it this week and it's called Obstetrics in Trouble. <laughs> <laughs> that's the title of the uh, the podcast. So that's her podcast is called Midwifery Wisdom Podcast. So great. people can find me on there too. And my phone's going to die. So let's wrap it up before and you have to so do it by yourself. To, <laughs> so great to see you. Okay. So <laughs> I we'll love say, you. We'll say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 